Welcome to AmeriCast, your one and only source into the contemporary minds of America's brightest youth. I'm Olivia, and I go to North Oldham High School. I'm Jake, and I go to Harrison County High School. And I'm Patrick, and I go to Lafayette High School in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, all three of us are part of a program here called GSP, Governor Scholars Program. We are all um, international relations focus area, and part of our job here was to um, create this podcast as a way to, you know, show what we think of global issues. Uh, our instructor, Kyle Jones, has been drilling us with all these hypotheticals. One thing we did this week was we watched a movie that is considered very questionable. It's both factual and um, Hollywood, in a sense, called Charlie Wilson's War. Um, it's a 2007 American movie um, about a congressman, Charlie Wilson, and how he worked with the CIA in efforts to help uh, the Afghan Mujahideen um, defeat the Soviets during the Soviet-Afghan War. The uh, movie really kind of encapsulates uh, his fight to get funding to the uh, Mujahideen, and it really kind of shows how the fight against uh, communism could kind of be used in, in different ways back then. And it also kind of shows that um, sometimes uh, while we were fighting communism, we may have done things that, that we didn't think about the long-term consequences of. Yeah, it essentially um, demonstrates that throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, our foreign policy was completely oriented around containing communism, and we would essentially support any kind of group or regime as long as it was in favor of containment. And sort of the problem that we got into and something that Charlie Wilson's war does kind of a terrible job of doing that is true is, you know, in these in these refugee camps, um, you know, it's the foundation of the Taliban. We get into um, Al-Qaeda as well. Um, all these groups formed during that time period. And so the question becomes, did we, in a sense, fund the Taliban? Did we fund... Al-Qaeda by Charlie Wilson's war. And it's kind of interesting because, like, the real reason Charlie Wilson fought for so much funding of the Mujahideen uh, was after visiting a refugee camp, and he was inspired by, you know, the spirit of the people and how they've lost and how they still wanted to, you know, um, they still had that, s that source of pride in their country that they wanted to defend it. It's It's kind of ironic that that turned into what we're fighting today, that you kind of see how much things have changed. I mean, I would I would totally agree with that. Um, something that I've been, some phrase that I've keep throwing out there is, you know, we went into this 14th century country with 21st century ideals, with 21st century technology, and just expected them to adopt it without any sort of problem. And, you know, we're actually just 
spending a ridiculous amount of money. We're spending a ridiculous amount of time over there. And they're still in the maybe 15th century now. We've only helped a little bit. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you look at the way the Soviet Union went in in 1978 and then um, pulled out in 1989 right before it fell. And whereas we went in in what year? 2001, 2002. 2001 or 2002, and then we're still not out. And um, President Obama's recent statement concerning like the way he has to leave troops in, which he didn't plan on at the end of his term, kind of shows that it's difficult. It's been difficult for us to get out, and it's unlikely that we will ever be completely um, severed from the region. And that that's that's kind of that's kind of the question that I just that always is in the back of the my my mind is you know what if we had just never been in the Middle East in a sense would we would we have essentially spent four point four trillion dollars in Afghanistan for such little progress at this point would we have you know run into all these terrorist groups would we have in a sense if we had been out of the Middle East would we have just let them gradually build up to democracy and uh, I think it's interesting if you look back at it the United States has been involved in the Middle East since 1951 so just think about that a few years after the end of World War II and we're still there today with what seems like we're not about to leave anytime soon Um, it's just kind of interesting to see how there's certain regions where once you get kind of in it you're stuck you get entwined in it and you're there for a really long time and and what seems like a really good idea when you get there could end up becoming a, a problem for you in the future mm-hmm. so it's it's you know is there ever a time for us to leave is there a time for america to pull out all of its troops and when once we do um First of all, when is an opportune time for that? And also, um, is peace more possible if we are no longer um, entwined with them economically and militarily? I think for me, um, you know, it goes into we are severely intertwined economically Mm -hmm. with Afghanistan. Um, Both we rely on the Middle East for foreign oil. um, As well as, you know, we've spent a ridiculous sum of money in the Middle East, you know, $4.4 trillion is my little key phrase that <laughs> I'm going to keep saying throughout this. Um, and we're seeing very, very, very little progress. You know, most of the country is still um, in poverty. 22 out of every 1,000 kids dies before the age of one still. They're still in the bottom per capita in income in literacy rates, in life expectancy, in electricity electricity use, and in um, internet use as well. And it's just insane that we're throwing all this money, you know, $100 billion since 2002 mm-hmm. um, to Afghanistan. That's not even including, you know, plus another $16.5 billion for reconstruction purposes plus another 50 million for a project over here that never even worked mm-hmm. or 500 million over here for highway 1 which mm-hmm. is in Afghanistan that ended up actually just crumpling at mm-hmm. this point we we spent you know it was like 28 million dollars per mile mm-hmm. on a broken highway <laughs> it's also interesting like uh, 
The rebuilding process in Afghanistan has been based around private contractors this time around. And the problem they're having with private contractors is uh, a lot of times they won't do the work or they'll overcharge or they will um, ask for more money and then use lower priced resources. resources and then they <laughs> and then they just pocket the money. So the American government has lost a lot of money on Afghanistan. We've yeah. pretty much bled money for the last 14 years. As of 2015, U.S. troops were outnumbered by private contractors three to one. In Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. That's mm-hmm. That was insane. And, you know, they're, we're spending all this money on projects, but the lack of oversight... By the United States government is causing you know these contractors to do terrible jobs and be able to get away with it. There's a 2.4 million dollar compound that was supposed to be built inside an Afghan base, and instead was built outside the base. Five buildings went undetected by the United States government, being built outside a military complex. <laughs> that that's a laughable statement <laughs> yeah. that no one <laughs> noticed five buildings that were supposed to be inside outside a military compound that that blows my mind that we that's just 2.4 million dollars that we just flushed down the toilet so is the question should we have more oversight or should we just stop trying to you know accomplish things and build infrastructure over there and kind of let them do it on their own I think yeah actually thank you for focusing back up um i think back what i was saying is you know we are so tied with them militarily now that and economically now that we're not gonna want to leave until we see the progress we want to see yeah that 4.4 billion dollars better come with a 21st century viewpoint yeah in afghanistan but at what point do you just cut your losses at what point have you like lost so much that it's just i mean because i don't I don't know. Personally, I don't know if I've formed an opinion on it yet, but at some point, I wonder if you, if just getting out of it is a win at some point mm-hmm. of just not having to deal with it anymore. But it's it's re- it's an interesting debate about when can you pull out, if you can pull out, and how can you pull out. Especially if um, we're becoming more energy de- or independent. Um, the question is how much we actually need to be involved over there and also whether or not our involvement is making the people that live over there that are the ones that end up rising up and forming these terrorist groups and regimes and stuff out of their anger and emotions over the United States is whether or not our involvement and in our the way we think we're helping their infrastructure and um, their you know way of life and trying to institute democracy whether that's making them more angry at us or more happy with us? Mm. I, I mean, I for me personally, I think we're never... I think the Middle East is something we're stuck in, something you said earlier, you know, it's a, it's a region for me that we go into, we went into foolheartedly and are now going to be stuck in for a while. Um, something, another thing that I've been saying, it's this power vacuum. So essentially, you know, when we propose that hypothetical of when can we leave is it possible for us to leave when is that time um you get into the point where you know what happens when we leave will there be this i i believe personally that there will be this huge power gap 
that inevitably will either be filled by an anti-American regime or another large country. You know, you you get into maybe Russia coming in, you get in to China maybe. Um, it's these one big country is going to be replaced by another in a sense. Yeah, I mean, the countries around the Middle East are are sort of weak. <laughs> and yeah. um, if we just tomorrow decided to totally drop the Middle East and not rely on it at all, somebody else will, will come in and will gain power there. I wonder at some point you have to, to kind of consider um, if we did find like another source of energy that where we didn't have to have the Middle East, would it be all right to to drop it and leave that headache for somebody else? And then, sort of the the cornerstone phrase is stability. You know, the other option for us to leave the Middle East is you know we can still be relying on oil as long as they're stable. So how do we define stability in the Middle East that would mm, allow us to leave? You know, I, I personally think that one of the key points of stability is not necessarily government so much as it is literacy rates, especially in Afghanistan. You know, it's like 11% of the population is literate. It's it. It's one of the lowest literacy rates ever. You know, there's training all these a ridiculous amount of soldiers over in Afghanistan, but what use is a soldier if he can't read a license plate or a manual to his weapon? I just think, for me personally, a win for us would be increasing the literacy rate. Um, I think, like, when increasing the literacy rate, I almost think, like, we can only do so much. At some point, it has to come from Afghanistan. And I feel like they're just so weak. I wish we could. I really wish that, that we could go in and, and really help them. But it's almost like if you're going to change something, it has to start with you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I agree with you 100%. If the illiteracy rate increased, the country would, would just take off. But And that's that comes down to, you know, the other, another hypothetical is, did they even want to be helped? Mm -hmm. You know, our Western ideals don't mesh well. No, no in a uh, predominantly Muslim Islamic mm -hmm. place. Um, and then like what gives us the right to push our ideas yeah. on them? Yeah. Because, I mean, how would that be any different than them pushing, forcing Islam on us if we force Western ideas on them? Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, I feel like literacy is still really important. Yeah. But, uh, but you, you look at, you know, do they want to be helped? And there's, there's you know, there's instances where we see the Afghan government, the so-called government, or as well as the citizens push back against, you know, USAID, against um, these projects that we're doing supposedly for them. Um, you know, for instance, the Afghan military in um, 2007 lied for fueling purposes. You know, they... They included non-mobile homes and animals as something that required jet fuel. Donkeys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and they they allocated this jet fuel. No one knows what they used it for mm-hmm. at all, because they destroyed the records against DOD policy, <laughs> and we just sort of brushed it off, you know, as if it were nothing. But it's just kind of just these subtle pushbacks mm-hmm. that suggest to me, in a way, that they don't necessarily want our help. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I understand what you're getting at. I mean. I feel like there's such, sometimes in countries like this, there's such a strong anti-American sentiment that if we come in and saying, oh, we're going to try and help you, a lot of times they, they will refuse it just based on the principle of it's coming from America. So I feel like if there was a way for us to get the, the Afghan government to try and educate its own people uh, or put more of an emphasis on education, uh, I think that would be a really effective way of helping the helping the country. But the only problem is, it's like we have no power to tell them how to run their country, and if we do, that's just going to cause more backlash. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's almost like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you're talking about even if we did have that power, for putting them on that track, in a sense makes us their crutch Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you know i I talk about this i've already talked about this but i will again you know the the power vacuum will leave you know if we kick away ourselves as the crutch in a sense we can only hope that they'll stand and not fall Mm -hmm. um it's it's just kind of this american idea that we have to help everyone we have to stick our finger in everyone's pie and in a sense, we're making it so that they cannot function without American aid, without these American projects, without American weapons. You know, you look back to the Soviet-Afghan war, um, the Afghanistans were all, it was all funded by America because we saw this communist threat gave the Afghan people, you know, these awesome weapons <laughs> yeah and we established a crutch and I think it's it's interesting how uh, US policy uh, foreign policy that is uh, over the past 200 years has became more of like a crutch basis you know if a cu- if we need a country to be stronger we'll prop it up on us, or at least attempt to. It doesn't really work a lot of times. Uh, but if you go back to like the views of like, you know, George Washington would have never wanted us to prop up a country because his farewell address tells us that, you know, don't be intertwined with other countries. Mm-hmm. But today's society, we're so interconnected, it's almost impossible not to uh, be tied to certain countries or every country if you look at it that way. But it's interesting. I feel like sometimes we don't have choice, but other times I feel like we should just, you know, rip off the Band-Aid. You know, it's sink or swim. You know, you're either going to work it out or somebody else will be ruling you. Hmm. And at, at what point is that our problem? You know, I feel like we have so much dependency on certain countries that we have to make sure that they keep going for our own good. But at some point I feel like if you're not strong enough to lead your own people, you don't deserve to lead your own people. Yeah, and I think part of the reason we struggle with this is we don't have a definitive foreign policy that um, 
can kind of lead us in determining whether or not we want to be a police power or a crutch in certain countries as compared to other countries because um, each conflict in each country is different and the way we have it set up now we're trying we're still in our um, Cold War mind of trying to respond to every conflict in the same way and then since we can't that's physically impossible we end up just reacting and it's not predisposed it's not predetermined and so it ends up just being a reaction and that we usually regret I mean I kind of feel like I agree with that 100% that um, the post so like the fall of the Soviet Union really changed Americans for America's foreign policy but instead of changing it we left it the same we should have changed it mm-hmm. then, but we never changed our foreign policy over. So we still rely on like some of the same tactics today uh, to handle foreign policy as we did in 1973. Uh, the only problem with that is that the people we used to use them on don't fall for the same tricks anymore. So we used to be able to come in and promise local authorities certain things, and they would do our bidding just based on the promises because we were America. And we, we, we had good credit with all of these local authorities. But today, we don't. Uh, a lot of times, local authorities are against America. And a lot of times, they have good reason to be. It's just, it's a, such a different type of foreign policy now that we're still playing with. We're still playing with the rules from, you know, 1945 through 1990. We have no shot at being as successful as we were just because we're playing an old game. Like, we haven't changed over. Mm-hmm. So, a question that we were posed yesterday that's been kind of in the back of my head this whole time is, you know, nowadays we're getting presidential candidates, we're getting politicians with one to two sentence foreign policy statements. We're getting these set little small statements that usually reflect cold for Cold War ideologies, in a sense. So, a question that Kyle posed to us yesterday, do you remember it? It was, you know, what if we had a candidate who's came up saying, you know, the world is ever-changing, the world is ever-moving, um, I want to scrap all foreign policy to the state, and in, um, in its place put a foreign policy that we react day-to-day based on situation to situation. So I just wanted to hear you all's your opinion so, on that. So basically that's exactly what we need, is we need a policy that allows us to make decisions on a day-to-day, conflict-to-conflict basis, so that um, if we're dealing with ISIS or we're dealing with oil interests in Saudi Arabia, then we have different means of reacting to each issue instead of, since there's no overarching um, threat like communism, there's nothing for us to make, first of all, the people in America fear and the people in the Middle East fear. And so we have to handle each one based on a different threat instead of trying to do the same one. Yeah, I really like this idea, too. The only downside I see is that um, the ch- the it gives the executive mm. a lot of power. That was my point, yeah. And it also, what it will do is, it, you know, if we have a president for four to eight years, has a certain style who say he's very uh, laid back you know 
he kind of appeases a little bit. He stays out out of trouble. Uh, and then you have a new president come in that's really aggressive and, and you know, plays harder. I wonder how that would go over with countries. Because the U.S. already gets criticized now for changing its foreign policy every four to eight years just based on presidential candidates. I feel like maybe if we did do this day-to-day -day change, would it maybe amplify that problem? Or would it solve it? Because you'd be... You know, you'd be fixing things as they break, you know. You'd be working day to day, uh, you know, this just happened and we're going to fix it like this. And then the next day you move on. Instead of trying to say, okay, we have this, this format of how we s solve problems. And if it doesn't fit in this format, it's going to be something that they talk in the next presidential election about how they're going to fix it. Because if we can't do it this way, we won't be able to do it. That's not a healthy system. But the n but the new system, like you're talking about, is flexible, and I think flexibility is really important in today's uh, foreign policy because mm -hmm. it's it's changing so much. Mm -hmm. And something that you said, Jake, that really that I totally agree with is, at the same time, it's it's a very flexible system. It very it's very broad. It helps. It could help a wide variety of things, but it also puts a lot. Of focus, a lot more focus than it already is on the executive branch. It makes it so that it is, it can be um, overpowering. It can be a power that can be misused <laughs> quite often. Uh, that's what I'm afraid of if this were sort of the foreign policy that we go with. Um, you know, the president already is essentially making more and more decisions nowadays in this um, present America that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, so I think creating a foreign policy that was a day-to-day -day basis, he would, for that to happen, we'd have to in, in insert more checks and balances into the executive branch yeah. to create that day-to-day -day foreign policy. Um, but like, talking about making foreign policy more flexible, it's been done before. In, in U.S. history, there's a precedent. Um, Truman and Eisenhower in particular, mainly Eisenhower, had very strict rules on how they would deal with communism. And they pretty much said, if you do this, we will do this. And they, they saw that as a, a, as a way of protecting themselves from whatever the communists wanted to do. Um, but then when Kennedy took office, he, been, he practiced under more of a flexible plan. So... What happened is when something like the Cuban Missile Crisis comes up, he doesn't have to immediately start threatening missiles. He can kind of work it out a little bit more. Um, and then since Kennedy uh, went to more of a flexible plan, a lot of presidents have stuck with that flexible plan. So I wonder if now we're trying to make it, if making it more flexible would help. Um, or if we need that kind of strict, stern stance, I don't know. I mean, you can you can make arguments for both sides because you know Kennedy did handle the the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, so the other thing I I propose in a sense is you know we are at this point in America a very proactive country. We we act before something happens because we believe it will happen. You know we think. There's an Al-Qaeda cell here, so we're going to go bomb here before they come. 
Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that we should keep the proactive stance we have as Americans or switch to a more of a reactive America in ah. a sense where we react to al-Qaeda being there, we react to someone threatening us, we react to the Cuban mis- missile crisis? I think that our, I don't, I don't know, our, both our proactivity and reactivity are part of what's causing the problem because um, I don't think that full consideration is given to the consequences either in either way. And I think that um, when we make, you know, impulsive decisions, like to bomb a cell before it's done anything, even though we believe it, it kind of sends mixed signals out, like if we decide to bomb one but not bomb another. Um, but we know about both. It sends mixed signals to these terrorist organizations and to the people um, over in the Middle East, and it they don't know what to expect from us. And I think that's part of the reason why we deal with such um, such an anti-American sentiment is because we're unpredictable. Reactivity is good if we have a policy that allows us to approach our reactions before you know, like unimpulsively, basically. Yeah, I think uh, act reactivity and proactivity are kind of like a weird thing to think about for America because I'm I'm kind of in favor of reactivity or proactivity. I kind of feel this proactivity is wrong because, you know, in America we're based on your innocence or proven guilty. And I know they're not American citizens, but I feel like we still need to operate under the uh, ideas that we were founded upon. I feel like it's not right for us to just throw those out and say, no, we don't like you and we think you did this, so we're going to bomb you in a country we have no jurisdiction in over people we don't rule. But also, I mean, you have to protect America. And and now, like, you know, during the fight against communism, people could say we're doing this to fight communism. well, now you can say we're doing this to fight terrorism. And it's almost like a get-out-of-jail-free card. And I kind of find it as wrong, but I can see why you do it. Because the overall goal is to protect Americans and protect our way of life. But something that's really important to me is, is staying true to the ideas of America. Because I feel like if we don't live up to the ideas and the goals of America, then what are we really even fighting for? And, you know, ISIS, it isn't just in, you know, Syria or Afghanistan. It's in nearly all the countries in the Middle East, including our allies. And if we are to uphold our American values and morals, um, we can't treat every ISIS situation the same. Our reactions have to be different, which is why, I guess, reactivity is important but it's it can be dangerous I, I I would have to agree I would have to um, disagree somewhat with you Jake that it should be I think it should be not reactive but I think it should be a balance you know you look at 9-11 we reacted very very poorly to that situation we started this hypothetical war on an idea we started going into these countries that we have no place being in. Um, I think there should be a complete balance. 
and it's really really hard I can't even tell you what that balance should be and so you know for a while maybe we will be more proactive than reactive then maybe for a while we'll be more reactive than proactive until we can find that balance in policy that makes the America that sticks to our ideals. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I mean, I feel like balance is really, really important in foreign policy. So I can, I can see where you guys are coming from. I mean, I think proactivity is important. I, feel, I don't feel like it's right. But sometimes I think you got to do things that you don't feel are right. And, and a lot of people feel like proactivity is the way to go. So I can see, I kind of agree with you guys on that one. Balance is a really good. Balance mm -hmm. in foreign policy is important. Mm -hmm. And then so something else that we've discussed in the last couple of days is um, sort of we looked at a map of social media and all these um, where these terrorist supporters are coming from on you know this very populous social media you look at Twitter it's one of the most uncensored populous social media that you're finding a lot of organizations running through including ISIS and on that map um, something that interested us that's something that you said earlier is you know we're getting most of the tweets about ISIS coming from Saudi Arabia considered uh, it's a considerable ally for the United States in oil um, but you know, ISIS is completely anti-American. Um, so you know, you could you could argue that you know they're coming to Saudi Arabia due to it's slightly more westernized. You're going to get more internet access, but at the same time, you're getting these terrorist organizations in allied countries in countries that we consider our friends, countries that we buy oil from. Yeah, I mean, Saudi Arabia over the last few years has just been, we've had a really hard time with them because they've been, a lot of the uh, fighters for the terrorist groups train in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabian government has backed up a religion that that hates the idea of America. Um, so I can kind of, I agree, like, it's a little frightening that an ally is, is training the people we're fighting, you know? Or that, you know, Twitter in Saudi Arabia is, is covered with, with ISIS sentiments. Mm -hmm. and, um, well, and, and the question comes down to how much do we let slide for these stable oil prices, mm -hmm. for, you know, good relations? Do we let these terrorist groups train their soldiers in a country that we considered our ally? just because we can get a hundred dollars a barrel of oil? Well, I think that going also back to what he said, the um, involvement of ISIS in our allied countries is causing, I mean, we're at a complete low point. We have, we're at maybe an all-time low point with our allies in the Middle East right now just because we're slightly paranoid and that, you know, terrorist groups are training in allied countries and we're, we might be trying to manipulate you know those governments so that we can take out the terrorist organizations and we're less there's less of a trust between us and our ally, allies and um, I think that we are gonna have to find a way to 
react differently to terrorist organizations in our allied countries if we want to maintain those alliances. See, I think I think we're doing kind of the opposite. I think we're acting proactively and slowly distancing distancing ourselves from these allies in case they do come around to anti-American sentiment in case they do begin to attack the United States, maybe not militarily, but more economically. You know, what happens if Saudi Arabia stops giving us oil, stops selling us oil? We, that's 12% of Americans' oil globally comes so, from comes so, from Saudi Arabia. So you're saying that... Um, distancing ourselves from our allies at this point might actually be strategic. Mm -hmm. I think we're doing it proactively in case something goes wrong. And then, you know, that goes back to the points that you've made earlier of we need to become more reliant um, domestically on oil. Yeah. I mean, if we, if we really are trying to proactively distance ourselves from the Middle East and Middle Eastern oil, uh, a big step from that would be... Um, Increasing self-reliance mm -hmm. on, uh, especially in the United States and countries around the United States. I feel like if we could uh, increase um, funding for research to uh, increase the use of more alternative forms of energy, then we wouldn't have to rely on oil that much. And mm -hmm. uh, it'd be kind of interesting to see, you know, if we are doing that. Because then if, if the numbers line up, you could make a case that we have that in the back of our mind that, you know, someday we're going to, we might have to just drop the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And if you drop the Middle East, you're dropping Middle Eastern oil. And, and the, key, the key to that is someday. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we are, as we've said, so economically tied to the Middle East. Um, you know, we will manipulate the social aspects. We will manipulate political aspects we will we will do military force just to get that economic gain just to keep that 12% oil to ourselves and and part of me thinks it but doesn't want it to be true but part of me thinks that if Saudi Arabia said no more oil the next day we'd be going to war in Saudi Arabia I, I could I could see that mm-hmm that that hypothetical is very scary. You yeah. know, you you something you've mentioned before, Jake. Jake is that OPEC embargo, I think. Yeah, yeah, the OPEC embargo in the seventies, um, five percent, five percent every month, and uh, crippled the by economy. the end it crippled all a lot of uh, developed countries. And what it actually did was between uh, the price of oil in. 1980 was 10 times higher than the price of oil in 1973. So the OPEC embargo actually made oil uh, a more costly commodity and uh, that's really what it's done is it's increased <laughs> how much we need these Middle Eastern countries. It's, it was a genius move by the, by the Middle East that I don't think they saw c coming actually. Mm -hmm. um, but they've made oil uh, so costly but so needed that it almost helped um, developed countries realize how much we need the Middle East. And I also think it, it made the Middle East realize how much the developed countries need them. 
it, it gave a lot of power to whoever has oil in the ground. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, that goes into if 5% can cripple rising nations. What does 20% what, do? Yeah, what, yeah. Is, what is 20%? Or 100%. Yeah, what is... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a scary thought, scary, scary thought. Um, I, I would have to agree, though, you know, if, if, you know, these... If hypothetically the Middle Eastern countries withheld oil from the United States, I think that we would mobilize the troops we have there. I wouldn't necessarily say that we would send more in yet, but I think we would get into, you know, the 90-day yeah. war without... War Powers Act, yeah. You know, war Powers Act, without congressional approval to yeah. mobilize those, what is it, 80,000 troops still in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I think we'd increase it a lot, too. Just, uh, even with the threat of that, I feel like oil is so, is so important to us that if you even threaten taking it away, it's going to heighten our sense. We get very defensive about oil. And a lot of times you got to remember that oil isn't sold on the open market. It's sold on contracts and bids. Uh, if oil hit the open market, I wonder what would happen. Would the price increase because, um, you know, there would be some more demand? Or would it decrease because countries would, like, underbid each other and should try and get more competition? But I don't know. I wonder in 20 years how oil is sold or if oil is even sold anymore how how's it going to change you know mm-hmm. and how's our how's our policy towards it all going to change mm-hmm. you know we have a very militaristic policy towards foreign oil mm-hmm. um you know we we don't necessarily care if you're pro democratic if you're mm-hmm. pro western values as long as you are a pro-American regime and willing to keep oil prices stable. And I think that's a completely other problem Mm -hmm. in our policy towards um, Middle Eastern countries. I mean, I'd really like to see more self-reliance and then also trading with uh, countries with more like values with us. Because, you know, if, if we could trade with countries that believed in co- some of the things that we believed or were more established, then I feel like it'd make uh, the relationship uh, between the um, importers and exporters of oil way more sturdy. And I think that would kind of, I think it would actually decrease the price of oil just because of that a stronger foundation. Yeah, because I don't necessarily think that, um, that, um, all of the countries that we have contracts with and deals over oil are pro-American. I don't think that they are supporting our values, and I think we could, especially with our greater energy dependence, we could take care to make sure that these countries that we are trading oil with are a lot more pro-American. To recap, today we've talked about uh, Charlie Wilson's war, the Soviet-Afghan war, uh, modern relations with Middle Eastern countries, uh, foreign policy and how it's changed, if we even have one, uh, and the power vacuum that, that is the Middle East. Uh, we also went through President Obama's recent statements on Afghanistan and the Afghan costs, and we even talked a little bit about uh, Middle Eastern oil and self-reliance at the end there. So, uh, yeah. Great, thank you. Looks like that's all we have for this week. 
Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at underscore Americast underscore. Thanks for joining us.